Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really exciting guest. You know, we're going to be talking about building, scaling, financing, and exiting. He's done it multiple times. You know, the uh, last one, actually, you know, a rocket ship that uh, at the peak, you know, was $2.2 billion in valuation. Talk about value. Uh, but again, you know, we're going to be talking about all the good stuff that we like to hear. We're going to be talking about mission, building mission-driven teams. We're going to be talking about also the creation of sectors versus the creation of a company. Also understanding your role as a CEO when you're maybe 29 versus maybe you're when you are 68. And then also succession and legacy. So many, many, many more things besides this. So again, brace yourself for getting inspired. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, George Goldsmith. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. I'm really excited about today. So originally born in Philly. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? <laughs> well, life was great growing up. It was, uh, I was born in 1955, which is forever ago for most people who are listening, I'm sure. Um, I was adopted, adopted by a great family and uh, put into a school that was a very high intensity athletic school. And I was not a jock. So I turned to technology and reading and uh, kind of had a different kind of life than many of my classmates did who were very into sports. And that seemed to set the trajectory for the rest of my life. Now, it's interesting that you mentioned that because, I mean, you see people like Michael Jordan not making it to the high school, you know, basketball team and then becoming one of the best, uh, you know, athletes of all time. I guess like for you, not being such a great athlete and, and going to other routes, you know, how do you think that that built you up, you know, for who you are today, George? Well, I think it was incredibly important because it got me focused on things that were interesting to me in the late 60s, like computer programming when we were using cards and Fortran. And that led me to going to a summer program for kids at Wharton School, where I ended up actually teaching and mentoring uh, MBA students that summer when I was 14. Um, it led me to really be exposed uh, in the late 60s to all the campus unrest and psychedelics. And we'll pick up on that a little bit later, I'm sure. Um, so for me, it just gave me a completely different trajectory. And I was always hanging out with people who are maybe four to eight years older than I was. Um, and so that accelerated my learning in many ways. And how do you think that the the blend of psychology and then also perhaps computer science came together. Like, how do this come together as an interest for you? Well, look, I think one of the interesting things, the reason I mentioned I'm adopted is I think that, you know, for me, one of the hallmarks of that is you're always kind of part in and part out. You're never really part of the family, but you're never out of the family. You know, it's always, you're, you're kind of in this one foot in, one foot out. And I think that's been a theme in my life of combining different things. So I was always interested in how do people think and, you know, what happens and where are feelings coming from. And so I was always kind of a curious person psychologically, but I was also pretty 
rigorous in terms of, I like things to work and I love the problem of computer science and I love the idea that you could either do something that would work or not and you would know whether you got it right. That's really hard to do in psychology. So to get both of those things was sort of an interesting blend for me. Now, eventually, you know, after you got your degrees, you uh, started your first company. So uh, walk us through what were the sequence of events that needed to happen for you to bring to life the human interface group? Well, it was pretty simple. Um, I was, and this will have people realize that I'm not very smart at times. Um, so I spent five years in a PhD program in clinical psychology. And I was just getting ready to the very last step, which is to go get an internship. And the more I thought about that before I completed the dissertation and so forth, the more I realized I really didn't want to work one person at a time. And that for me was a really important moment. It was a very disappointing moment for all the faculty and so forth when I decided that actually I didn't want to become a psychotherapist and researcher. I wanted to have a greater impact. And then I started thinking around what could I do? And I was always interested in technology and psychology and trained in clinical psych. And at that time, there were some really big computer projects going on in some of the biggest companies looking at how to computerize manufacturing. And the more people I talked to who were working in business, and this was kind of a, a very foreign environment for me. I was an academic, in academia until I was 29. Um, I think what became very clear to me was that no one was thinking about the people side of technology. And that led me to create the Human Interface Group with other psychologists. And what we did was really look at how do we help people learn how to use the technology more effectively? But far more important, how do we work with leadership to understand how people and technology need to work together to improve performance? And that really became the, the basis of Human Interface Group, which then grew into, uh, I had a fascinating project supporting the largest nuclear power plant manufacturer in the world. And they were based in Connecticut in the U.S. And the plants were being built in Korea. And I would see these poor project managers drowning in faxes that came in overnight. And I said, can't we do this differently? And I started looking at technology and that connected me into uh, Lotus, which was early, early project team looking at Lotus Notes. And uh, that led me to start looking at pivoting from doing psychological kind of process work to actually building software that included the process. And then I ended up selling that to Lotus and leading something called the Lotus Institute, which was really the uh, advanced applications group at Lotus Software uh, for collaboration. So you sell the company to Lotus, then Lotus gets acquired by IBM. So obviously a ton of M&A action there. So what, what did you learn about, I guess, you know, really coming from from the starting point all the way to the finish line, like the full cycle of building, scaling, and, and getting that company to the finish line? Well, I, I have to say, one of the things that was really fun was uh, having the company acquired uh, a year before that company being acquired by IBM, Lotus being acquired by IBM, was wonderful because all of the things that were earnouts over time accelerated. So that was a nice thing about having uh, IBM come in and take over Lotus. For some reason, must have been for some of my sins, I was actually on the leadership team overseeing that merger process, which was an incredible cultural uh, conflict, if you will. Lotus, a very fast-moving uh, software company taken over by IBM, which was not that at the time. And so, you know, I learned a lot. I was really responsible for looking at the strategy of how we 
do the merger successfully and so forth. And um, that was an incredible learning experience. And it also made me realize, despite the fact that my father finally said he was so happy I had an IBI, finally worked for a company he, rec he recognized. Uh, you know, this was the big thing about being bought by IBM. But I said, no, I'm going to go do something new again because that's what I do. And that was Tomorrow Lab. At what point does Tomorrow Lab come knocking? Uh, Tomorrow Lab came knocking because I was always really interested. Nolan Bushnell, who founded Atari, has this wonderful quote. And it's the best way to predict the future is to create it. And I'm that kind of guy. Um, and so Tomorrow Lab for me, this was 1996. Again, ancient history for most people. But it was the time when the internet was starting to become seen and known. And obviously my work at Lotus Notes and collaboration software before the internet really gave me an interesting vantage point for this. Um, and so, and I was also a senior advisor to McKinsey and Company, helping them launch their e-commerce and mobile commerce practices in the 90s. So I had this interesting vantage point of seeing the future being born all around us. And so what I wanted to do with Tomorrow Lab was create an organization that would essentially provide guidance and service to how you go onto the web as a big business, um, how you cultivate customers, et cetera. And I did that. And um, I really became fascinated by how the ecosystems of customers could come together, whether it is something like the App Store that Apple did or way before that, the Lotus App Store, of how we can create communities and networks. And that was a lot of my work at Lotus. Tomorrow Lab said, let me do that for others. And then the relationship with McKinsey strengthened and we created Tomorrow Lab at McKinsey uh, in the late 90s. And I was the CEO of that and the first CEO of the first division at McKinsey and Company. Uh, there's a lot that could be learned from that, but I'm not allowed to write about any of it, as happens so often in these kinds of <laughs> transactions and transitions. Um, so that's, that's Tomorrow Lab. But I learned so much about uh, I mean, this was 99 and we were creating online video portals for education of McKinsey clients, right? So this is, I've always been kind of a leading edge kind of guy and perhaps a bit too early, um, which I finally got right with Compass 10 years later, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Absolutely. Now, I guess uh, being involved with, um, you know, an entity like McKinsey, I'm sure that you really learned a lot when it comes to problem solving, because I find that all these consultants, you know, they're amazing at really being able to grab one really big problem, you know, break it down into small problems, and then you tackle one by one. I'm sure that that gave you a ton of perspective to, to be able to have that exposure. It, it really did. And it also helped me understand what's great about that and what gets missed by that. And so it often leads to much more kind of operational focus and sometimes being really, really good at cultivating and nurturing the trees. And sometimes you miss the forest. And so I think what became really clear to me was thinking about how to apply problem solving, but to areas not of operational issues, cost reduction, things that McKinsey really did amazingly well for mature companies. But how do you apply that sort of rigor to a really broad open space? Um, and for me, one of those areas uh, in the late, uh, early 2000s, late 90s, um, was what I did after the bottom fell out of the dot-coms at McKinsey, where we're building a product for the dot-coms. There wasn't much of a market. 
I wasn't a typical McKinsey person, so I went off and created something new called Tapestry Networks. I was also very involved in something called the Young Presidents Organization. I was on the board of directors there and launched uh, one of the most successful products in YPO's history called YPO Networks. And that was really all based on the concept of bringing leaders together and having them share their experiences, learn from each other, and then look at how to do better themselves. And that that went into the creation of uh, Tapestry. So, you know, and to do that at a commercial scale, but to take the problem sets that were really big, like how do we deal with ethics and fraud inside corporate America, which I started with at uh, Tapestry. So, so Tapestry actually... Yeah, Tapestry actually still exists. You know, it's a, now a company that you're chairman of. At the same time, you know, being chairman of Compass, you know, Pathways. So I'm I'm wondering here, like, when it comes to a board, like mm -hmm. effective dynamics, and then also being yeah. an effective chairman, what does that look like? Hmm. Um, one of the key things I've learned over my life that I think it looks like is really believing, not just saying we are smarter than me. Um, it's to really understand what you are good at, what you're not good at, how to surround yourself with people who compliment you, who challenge you, and being open to feedback, while at the same time staying true to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a hard balance. Um, but I think in, in creating boards of directors or supporting boards of directors, Tapestry's main business is actually providing leading edge thinking to boards of directors. We have about 60% of the Fortune 100 directors involved in our work meeting multiple times a year, et cetera. And it's really a safe place, much like Young President's organization, to share things confidentially and to look at how to improve process. And what I learned for doing that at Tapestry or doing it before that at Tomorrow Lab at McKinsey, at YPO, is that creating a safe environment for people to be themselves and to express their perspectives is really important. Listening and learning is really important. It's probably more important at a certain point than telling and selling. And that's one of the things that you have to learn as an entrepreneur is that the start is always tell and sell. It has to be. It's your vision. But there gets to be a point where you have to really temper that with listen and learn. And so I think getting that balance right and picking the right people around the board table, that's really important. And it's never finished. Never, never, never finished. Companies grow, they're dynamic. Boards need to grow, they need to be dynamic. And I think that's one of the main challenges with lots of boards of directors is that the dynamism of the sector or the dynamism of the company really need to be matched by a steady hand, but also dynamism of the board. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I gotta tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So 
that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, in your case, you did develop this interest for psychedelics, more on the research side. You know, and I guess, you know, obviously living in the 60s, 70s, you know, like when when all of that uh, crazy, you know, uh, nest was happening, you know, and it kicked in, you know, really, you, you, you really developed that interest on the research side around it. And Ultimately, you know, certain family events that happened really triggered and pushed you to bring something to life called Compass Pathways. So walk us through the origins of it. How did you decide to take action and what were the sequence of events that needed to happen? Well, being a geeky kid at the uh, University of Pennsylvania, 6970, um, there was a wonderful researcher named John Lilly, who was uh, working actually for the U.S. Defense Department contracts at University of Pennsylvania, who was doing sensory deprivation, a wetsuit completely covering his body, water temperature equal to his body temperature, complete sensory deprivation. Then he just added LSD for great measure and uh, did a lot of writing about this. And I actually had the interact, was able to interact a little bit. So I was always really intrigued by this kind of out there work, right? That's just kind of the theme you probably are picking up. So I thought about that. I read it. I had a couple psychedelic experiences in my teens there in that time frame, but was more always interested in not going to Grateful Dead concerts, but more about just what the experience was like and kind of how it could help people see things differently. Took a 38-year holiday. Um, I got married, uh, remarried to amazing doctor woman, uh, Ekaterina Malievska. She had an incredible son, 16, who went off to university and really started suffering with depression and OCD. And we'd never seen anything like it. Alejandro. Far, far too many kids suffer with this. Um, and nothing was working. As a matter of fact, all the traditional treatments were actually making him worse of side effects. And it was just tragic. Mm-hmm. And Katya, who is an activist. Uh, She was one of the first doctors on the ground zero and was the basis of the uh, health effects of 9-11 study. So she really leans into things. She runs toward things, not away from things. So she was doing research on how to help her son and came across research on psilocybin um, that was done in 2006. People who, one of the things our son suffered with was OCD, which is a terrible, terrible issue. Um, And what happened was she woke me up one morning in February of 2013 and said, I found this thing about psilocybin or not sure what it is. What do you know about psychedelics? 
And you grew up in the 60s and 70s. And I never told her about this. I never, there's no reason to. I forgot about it. And I said, well, actually quite a bit. <laughs> and um, that rekindled our getting interested in this. The scientific results were interesting. They were promising. They were small studies. And it was something completely different from the traditional antidepressants and therapy. So it appealed to that, like, this could be leading edge, let's, let's dig in. And we became donors to a lot of the research going on at NYU, Hopkins, UCLA, New London Imperial, Zurich. So we just said, let's, let's get smart about this and see what we can do. But, but meanwhile, a few years before, I had been working with major pharmaceutical companies at Tapestry to look at how do we get medicines to patients faster? And I'd been working with nine governments across Europe and the European Medicines Agency, which is like Europe's FDA. And we actually created a whole kind of collaborative process to develop a new way for research to be conducted so we understand what we have to show in order to get approved and reimbursed. And if you can't get reimbursed, people who are suffering cannot afford the treatment. So you really need to do that well. So there I was finishing up that project for five years. and. Our son became ill, psychedelics emerged. No one knew what to do. Was this the craziest idea? You're giving what to whom for what? And But the research started look promising. So what we did is we ended up creating a company to look at how to bring this forward, not through legalization and decriminalization. That all is going to go on its way, but to really help people like our son. And the more people we talked to, we realized almost everyone had a story of someone suffering from mental health issues, almost everyone. And so it's a huge problem, a huge unmet need. Current models only work for about 30% of patients, maybe 40, huge unmet need. We're talking about millions of people right now. The estimates are about 320 million people suffering from depression that isn't helped by anything else around the world. So we said, let's go for it. And, um, you know, we, we used the process I created with the European Medicines Agency, uh, co-created with them and countries. And we took the idea to them and they said, looks pretty interesting. Why don't you focus on treatment-resistant depression? Now, we realize that treatment-resistant depression is a huge problem, but it's not really the problem. These are patients who've been failed by the lack of innovation. Okay, they're not resisting treatment. No one said, no, no, don't do that. They're saying, give me anything that might help. And we just don't have what we can give to them. And we thought that psilocybin might be an approach that could work, psilocybin therapy. Um, so we built a company. We found three initial investors. Uh, it was actually our first meeting uh, with investors. And 15 minutes in, that investor was calling a friend of his in California very early in the morning. And that investor, was Christian Ungermeyer. His friend was Peter Thiel. Wow. Um, and um, Mike Novogratz's sister introduced us to everyone. So Mike Novogratz was in. So we had an amazing group of seed investors that were just, it was a complete accident. We were introduced to Mike by his sister while we were on a retreat trying to figure out what the heck to do and how we would raise how much money we needed. His sister, Amy, introduced us to Mike. Mike introduced us to Christian. And that was our seed round done. Um, That's unbelievable. And, now, 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 you guys raise ended up raising for the company about six hundred million. So, yeah, we've just finished our. Um, we just did a pipe, um, and we have commitments with warrants uh, 
a little bit over three quarters of a billion now since the inception of the company. That's incredible. Uh, we've actually raised uh, about a little bit over 650, I think. What has been the experience of going from financing cycle to financing cycle with a company like this? Um, it's a huge responsibility. Um, it's a huge responsibility that we are taking on for our patients. Um, and we can't ever lose track of that. And it is, this may be touching into building a sector, right? Because think about what we're doing. We're working with an illegal drug that's illegal and has been illegal since 1971 all around the world. Yet there's some promising research that's been done and allowed by governments, and particularly in the last uh, decade or two decades. So we are looking to address one of the largest problems on the planet right now, people's worldview, their mental health. We're starting with depression, but looking at things like anorexia, bipolar disorder, PTSD. And what we want to do here is to work on the hard stuff, not the easy stuff, because the easy stuff others can do. And so what for us has been really key is appreciating how to tell the story and how the story has a consistent golden thread. We're here to, the mission hasn't changed since 2014. We're dedicated to accelerating patient access to evidence-based innovation in mental health care. Evidence-based is critical. We're not talking about, I had a great shroom experience last weekend. That's great. I'm glad you did. But that's not scientific evidence. We're not talking about legalization so people can go to a concert. I mean, that should happen, but that's not what we're doing. What we're doing is saying we're operating in North America and Europe, total population about 850 million, and we want to make this available for anyone who's suffering as a potential tool in that. And that's just the beginning because then you expand to the rest of the world. And so we have, we're thinking big about how do we transform patient experience in mental health care? How do we transform their life experience? And that story has been consistent, but it started out with three of us, and now it's a couple hundred of us in the latest financing round, plus hundreds of researchers and others, 150 sites doing the research. So, you know, it takes a huge amount of time. The story has to stay consistent, and it also has to grow and change as the company changes and the world changes around us. And as we're talking about changing too, you know, in your case, you know, how has been the experience too of executing, you know, and, and the mindset when you were maybe like in your 20s and 30s versus now being in your 60s? You know, how have things changed, you know, when you look at execution too? It's amazing, you know, it's really, um, so my attraction to big issues has not changed. Um, my ability to execute against that has changed. Um, my ability to inspire others but rely on others has changed and grown over time. Um, because one of the things I learned is you, uh, visions are easy, they're super easy. Um, one might call them dreams. Um, but actually getting stuff done in the world requires teams, it requires a lot of different people perspectives. And so I think. One of the challenges is that as CEO, you almost have to be heroic to like you're it's kind of a crazy idea 
for any of us to say we're going to go make a difference and you know we're somehow we're going to be the one right so that's kind of a crazy idea and you need to have that crazy idea to recruit the initial team and get people bought in but then you have to kind of hand it off right and i've just gotten a hell of a lot better handing it off over time so that i can do what i'm good which is that which is to really ask a very simple question of people on problems of scale. Can't we do better and might not this work? And that enables me to get really interesting people into the problem with me. We sit next to each other. We don't negotiate across a table. What we're negotiating with is the problem and the opportunity. And that becomes a much more ingrained process in me as I grow older because I see how well it works. And it really is encapsulated in that expression I used before, which I think is so important for mission-driven leaders, is we are smarter than me. You just have to make sure you pick the right we. Absolutely. Now, if you were to go to sleep tonight, George, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Compass Pathways is fully realized, what does that world look like? Well, it's a beautiful question. And I think it's way beyond the view of Compass Pathways. And it's probably the view of anybody who's a parent or conscious human being, which is that we don't get stuck in suffering. We have a human experience which has ups and downs. But we don't get trapped in depression for years on end where we can't engage with the world, where we become incredibly internally focused, um, that we have a world where we can predict who will respond to what types of medicines, therapies based on data that we collect now that we wear on both hands, um, and that we can actually predict and prevent relapse. So for us, the future of mental health care is evidence-based, data-driven, always on. There's no difference between being in research and being a patient because we're always collecting data. We're always looking at how to make it better. And that we are not wringing our hands because we don't have human resources or aren't enough therapists. We really lean into how do we think about AI mentors for patients, AI therapy patients to train therapists to look at really how do we leverage technology, including the medicine technology, but also the digital technology, so that we can live healthier and happier lives informed by data and that we stay, we can help people get well and stay well. And I think that the area that we're working in and many other companies, or whether it's the digital area, the AI or the medicine, these all need to come together seamlessly around a patient to help them in their life journey. Does that make any sense? That does. That does. Now, let's say that, uh, you know, obviously now, you know, like you've passed the button and you're, you become the chairman of the company. What's next for you, George? You know, what, uh, what do you think, you know, the audience that are listening, you know, can expect from, from what's coming? There's a wonderful Haitian proverb um, that was actually the title of a book called Mountains Beyond Mountains, that when we climb a mountain, suddenly we realize we're either at the summit or we realize we've just climbed a foothill that we couldn't see the summit beyond that. And I think that's been how I viewed my entire life, that when I finish something, I kind of look around and I see 
wow, there's so many other things here to do. I think the Compass has done an amazing job and will do an amazing job through our phase three clinical trials. And hopefully those will all turn out well and patients will have access later this uh, decade to these new models of care. But it also points out that we still have a lot of work to do in terms of how do we transform care? How do we integrate digital? How do we integrate information? How do we handle privacy? How do we make sure that we can integrate AI in a way that you have a mentor who's always available 24-7, not an appointment I might have you know, at 11 a.m. next Wednesday every week, um, because that's not how life works. So the next phase, I think, is really stepping up and looking at that landscape I often think about it of how do we create mental health 2030 today? And so that's some of the stuff I'm thinking about. Then I'm also working on a passion project right now, which uh, for those people who uh, psychedelic therapy is uh, not going into a pretty field. It's actually going into a clinic with trained professionals taking a high dose psychedelic and eye shades and a music soundtrack. For our clinical trials, uh, Kachi and I developed, my wife and I developed the soundtrack it's with neuroscientists. That's all cool. But for me, it was always, it felt like a ransom note with lots of different music and tones. It wasn't coherent. So I've been spending the last 18 months working with an amazing musician named Dominic Miller to create a seven-hour soundtrack for psychedelic therapy and well-being. So that's been taking a bit of time. Um, Dominic has had the privilege of uh, being Sting's uh, lead guitarist for 33 years, um, worked in lots of bands. This is not that type of music. And so we have 14 musicians and are excited about concerts and uh, releasing this uh, about a year from now. So, And to really use it to help people become grounded and supported uh, through the psychedelic journey. And I'll just say one other thing. The unique thing about the psychedelic therapy is something that happened. Uh, Johns Hopkins, a research institution in the U.S., asked the following question of patients. How meaningful was this four to six hours in your life? People would get a little confused. What do you mean by meaningful? And they would say, well, like, think about the birth of your first child, your wedding day. And sadly, if you've had a, the death of a parent, that's what we mean by meaningful. And about 70% said it was the top five most meaningful experiences in their life. Nearly wow. a third said it was the most meaningful experience. So here we are, we have the opportunity to curate and support these experiences. And it's a huge responsibility and something that I think you know, we really need to look at and whether that's with music or thinking about mental health 2030. It's a huge opportunity. We need lots of people working on this and we'll do our little part. I love it. Now, imagine I was to put you into a time machine, George, and I bring you back in time. I bring you back in time to that moment where maybe you were thinking, you know, about starting your first company, you know, and uh, let's say you had now the opportunity of having a sit down, you know, right before, you know, you came up you know, with the idea of what ended up becoming, you know, that first company. And let's say you were able to have a chat with your younger self right before, you know, getting started with the human interface group. And let's say you were able to have a conversation with that younger George, and you were able to give that younger George one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? It's a really good question. And I think I might do two pieces of advice. One piece of advice is very simply 
it'll be okay regardless of the outcome because sometimes you win and sometimes you learn. The second one is maybe a little odd, but I think it's super important for early founders. And it's that God is in the details, not the devil. And mastery and the persistence for mastery on the details of what you're doing really matter. It's easy to get big visions. It's much harder to execute. One of my favorite Steve Jobs quotes, and I believe it is an actual quote, is real artists ship. So I think whatever happens with these things, you learn, you live. You may be poorer, you may be richer, but you you keep on going, right? And then just really pay attention to what you're doing and do it at the highest quality with the deepest level of persistence because that matters. Wow. Very profound, George. For the people that are listening now that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Um, Well, I guess LinkedIn works for me. So I probably just do uh, LinkedIn, George Goldsmith, LinkedIn, and then they'll be able to follow the next crazy things I'm up to. Amazing. Well, easy enough. Well, hey, George, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.